Breaking news. We've been living under the old guidelines for 27 or 28 years now. And it will feel uncomfortable as you go through the change management process. But once that's all done, we will be in a much better place, hopefully with less click fatigue, smaller notes, and then potentially a better outcome on the end. That's Dr. Jason Adler, who's the vice president of Acute Care Solutions Logix Health. He's core faculty at the University of Maryland, and he's the director of compliance and reimbursement, and he's one of the Corpendium chapter authors on emergency medicine documentation. And he is going to talk to us today about the question on every U.S. emergency physician's mind right now, which is what the heck is going on with documentation and billing as of January 1st, 2023? Because we all know that major monumental Mount Everest changes are looming in the United States and we need to adapt. Are you stressed about it? Well, don't be because This breaking news segment is going to give you all of the highlights of the key things you need to know. And remember, you can always refer back to the Corpendium chapter for a deeper dive. Let me first just give a little bit of context here. I know this might be old for many of our seasoned clinicians, but for some of the more junior learners, how do we get to the different levels of charts that translate into billing, into revenue? Well, since the mid-90s, there's been this grid-based system. And you have to check a certain number of boxes to get to a higher level chart, which bills more revenue. So for example, a level five chart, which is the highest, you have to hit at least four points in history of present illness, 10 points in review of systems. You have to mention at least two in past medical, family history, social history, and you have to do at least eight physical exam categories. If you did all of that, it met criteria for a level five chart and it got the highest reimbursement. We here in the United States know that this is really, frankly, ridiculous because let's say you take care of a patient, you provide excellent care. They're very sick. You admit them to the hospital. You do all the things that you needed to do for them. And yet you forgot to click one box on review of systems. Now you can no longer bill for the appropriate level of service that you provided. So what's that done to us? Well, it's trained us over the years to be box checkers, to ask Silly questions that might not be relevant at all to the patient's presentation, but we got to hit that 10 review of systems. Well, gosh darn it, we deserve better than that. We shouldn't be reduced to professional box checkers. Just to explicitly state this, the goal is not to bill at the highest level possible for every patient. Obviously, the goal is to chart in a way that reflects the level of service provided and bill accordingly. But that old system of grids and bean counting and box checking is going away. And now it's going to lean much more heavily on your thought process, on the medical decision-making or MDM. Now getting back to Jason, tell us what exactly is going to be different as of January 1st, 2023. Yeah, let's not bury the lead. The first major point as we move forward is that the history and exam will no longer be used to score the chart. And you go back to 95, you see the four HPI elements, 10 review systems, two out of three PFISH. Those were used to convert the work performed and when documented over to a financial value. The whole top half of the chart, history and exam, will no longer be used to score the chart. Now, you see the physician voice in the guidelines with statements such as the nature and extent of the history and exam determined by the treating physician reporting the service. You only need to document a medically appropriate history and exam, very different than what was said in the past. Furthermore, the main purpose of documentation is to support the care of the patient by current and future healthcare providers. So let's pause there. 
history and exam are no longer going to be part of the score to determine the level of chart and therefore the billing and the revenue that that generates. That's big. That means that a lot of the things that we have been just doing reflexively for years are now irrelevant. And some of those macros that many of us use to write a history and exam, those are going to change. Yeah. So in the past, we were taught based on these guidelines and we only documented what we actively performed. That's not going to change. But what these guidelines speak to is that you, the treating physician, can determine the extent of documentation of the history and exam section. History includes your HPI, your past family social history, your review of systems, and then the entire exam section. Okay, so history and exam is now focused more on pertinent findings instead of just checking a certain number of boxes to meet a certain level. A practical application of that might be within review of systems. Every physician will have their own process of making their own medical record. At the same time, given that these guidelines are changing, there may be an opportunity whereby if you are one of those physicians who is pretty comprehensive on your description of the history, maybe you've got a dictation software platform and you could do a thorough HPI that includes pertinent positives, pertinent negatives. There may not be a need for a review system section at all. Everything can be determined by the treating physician reporting service. Okay. So that's history and exam. And now that we're saying that those are not going to be counted to the same effect that they were previously, how is the level of charting determined? It's a great question. And everything that will be scored moving forward based on medical decision making. And before we get into the details of the key documentation elements and what we need to know at the bedside, I would offer a overall perspective of a well-written MDM note. It's not necessarily the quantity of words, it's more focused on quality. And the medical decision making section often involves the cognitive and thought process whereby you include, exclude diagnoses, whether that's by history or exam or by diagnostic testing. It may involve your decision to give medications or perform diagnostic testing, why you did or why you didn't, your update notes, your reassessment notes. It's all cognitive in nature. And that is very heavily weighed. And in fact, the only thing that is scored in these guidelines as of January 1. What does that mean, though? Like, how does that translate? I, I understand that I'm supposed to be really clear about documenting my thought process. I'm going to do that. But how does that then translate into a level chart and into billing? Yeah, so there is a coding grid. And without going into that entire grid on this conversation, what we will do is speak to what the guidelines value and translate that into clinical terms of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So there are maybe 10 documentation elements that are valued within the guidelines. And we'll walk through each one right now. The first is the differential diagnosis demonstrates the complexity of your care. The second involves comorbidities. The risk stratification involving comorbidities and how you approach your patients and documenting that are valued within the guidelines. The next three categories involve conversations or work performed with non-patient historians. There's history obtained by an independent source. That could be a family member, it could be EMS, law enforcement. There are discussions of management with physicians, QHP or appropriate source. And I think generally we do a great job of documenting when there's a conversation with the admitting team. We also do a good job with consultants, but appropriate source is brand new for 2023. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Then you have independent interpretation of studies. We often order studies based on the workup that we're performing and then look at those studies, whether that's EKGs or images, all the radiology studies. Then we perform a diagnostic interpretation and they make decisions off of that interpretation when performed and documented, heavily weighted 
within the guidelines. And there's diagnostic testing and prescription medication that you consider, but don't ultimately do or perform that is heavily weighed within the guidelines. And that's where you get into the cognitive work that is very heavily weighed. Compared to the past, you had ordered something, there would be credit assigned for that on the coding side. Now, if you consider it, but don't do it, you get the same amount of credit. And that's supported by ASAP and our other societies. An example of that would be as simple as a patient who comes in, maybe they're young with an upper respiratory infection or upper respiratory symptoms. You talk to the parent, guardian, and get a history. You order maybe a COVID RSV or flu swab. And then you document most consistent with the viral syndrome, no indication for antibiotics. On these new guidelines, you'd be credited as if you had done prescription drug management when in the past you wouldn't have gotten that credit. So it really amplifies the cognitive value that we do so long as that it's documented. And then you've got social determinants of health are weighed within these guidelines and consideration really with shared decision-making of escalation of care. Do you think that this is going to be an increased charting burden on us? We're going to have to spend more time charting this cognitive process that may have previously been implied by the workup that we had just ordered? I don't, actually. And, th and this question comes up quite regularly. Certainly, the top half of the chart, the entire history and exam section will be truncated. And that's very liberating. It's very liberating. The bottom half, using that initial example of the upper respiratory infection, documenting that you considered but didn't give antibiotics or it's most consistent with the viral syndrome, I don't know if there's a compelling reason not to document that. I think that's more into the bucket of a well-written note. So the elements that these guidelines value have strong alignment with a well-written note. I hope I didn't jump ahead too much with that question. But what I'd like to do is now go back to some of the things that you listed and get into some greater detail about what you mean and also what exactly do we need to document to support that thought process. Let's start with what you mentioned about documenting non-patient sources of history. There's reference to history obtained from an independent historian. What does that mean? What's an example of that? Patient comes in by EMS. Maybe it's a stroke patient. Maybe they're phasic. The history that we're getting comes from EMS. And by providing attribution to where you got that information, not only creates a more well-written note, but are also valued within the guidelines. And we all know that influences our treatment decisions. So you could see a patient who potentially is having a stroke, get the last time known well from EMS, and then an hour later, get a phone call from a family member with potentially a different last time known well. And by clearly stating when and what information you were obtained and by whom, that is heavily weighed within the guidelines. And anyone that reads that chart later will observe the evolution of the ED course. The other part involving non-patient sources of information involves management discussions with physician, QHP, or appropriate source. And that's a lot of words, but here's what matters. If you're talking with somebody else about the management of your patient, that's work performed and when documented, it is credited. And we do a good job with the consultants. We do a good job with our inpatient teams when we admit a patient. Appropriate source is a new definition. Social work, case management, if you have a mental health liaison, peer recovery coach. So basically, anyone from the interdisciplinary team that we speak with about patient care, that's going to be something we want to document. Let's talk more about external record review. Specifically, what does that mean? What counts? What do we have to document? This is new for 2023 because in the past, we were credited for old records. Now it's external. And the position of ASAP is very clear, the interpretation of these guidelines. External records are defined as any record you review outside of your own emergency department. So whether you're looking at a prescription drug management program or Care Everywhere with an Epic, or if you're looking at inpatient notes, if you're looking at old Echo for 
a patient that has severe sepsis or septic shock. Again, influencing treatment decisions, that's all credited, but you got to have the right language to say external record review as opposed to old records reviewed. The latter will not be scored, the former will. That's an adjustment that we'll have to make and learn new muscle memory as we transition to 2023. I want to know more about independent interpretations. What counts and what specifically do I need to document to make sure I'm credited for my work? We often order studies based on our diagnostic workup, and then we perform a diagnostic interpretation, and then we act off of that. EKGs are an example. I don't know about you, Jess. I have yet to get a phone call from cardiology about lateral T-wave inversions while treating a patient. We are making those interpretations, <laughs> right? Yes. But here's where the muscle memory comes into play. Because in the past, we would say EKG shows, EKG with, CT colon read. Now we have to be really clear saying, per my independent interpretation. And by claiming it as your own, the guidelines value that and will be credited as your chart gets scored. Can that be true also in reverse? In other words, one thing I often do, I'll look at an x-ray. It already has a radiology interpretation, but I still look at the x-ray myself and I'll often document I have personally reviewed this x-ray and agree with the finding documented. It, is it true also in, in that order? It is true. If you pull up that film and make an interpretation, there's nothing in the guidelines that talk about pre-post radiology studies. And of course, you could say wet read or prelim read, and then something on the back end of defer to radiologist final report. There's lots of ways to describe it. The way we interpret the guidelines is that when you are looking at a film and making an independent interpretation or EKG and making that independent interpretation, that's cognitive work you're performing that is valued and when documented appropriately will be credited. You have specifically mentioned the phrase, quote, per my independent review. It seems like that's the tip off to the biller to be credited for this work. How important is it to use that specific language? There's often good, better, and best. The best would be integrating the word independent interpretation with regards to whatever you're interpreting, that's the best. Per my interpretation is very good. What we can't do, and it's true pitfalls, just say EKG shows, EKG with, chest x-ray, colon, no pneumonia. And by the way, on the independent interpretations, you're not held to the level of the billing specialist. In other words, if you see a patient with an illness, or if you see a patient with a fracture, and you pull up that film, and you document, per my independent interpretation, no obvious fracture, per my interpretation, no pneumonia, and then if you want to connect to radiology, you mentioned that earlier, that's perfectly acceptable. But that's sufficient for an independent interpretation. As you mentioned, one thing that's kind of nice about this new system is that it puts value on not doing tests. So we obviously put thought into not ordering a CT or not starting antibiotics. How is that valued now? When it comes to diagnostic studies, we have a heightened sensitivity toward CT overutilization. The old guidelines valued doing things, ordering studies, ordering CTs and x-rays and images. Now we've got the PERC rule or PCARN or other risk stratification tools that help us avoid overutilization of studies. And when documented that you considered but did not actually need or it wasn't required to get that CT, you'll be credited as if you had with these new guidelines, whereas the old guidelines required the actual mouse click. Can you clarify this category of social determinants of health and what exactly that means from a coding and billing perspective? Social determinants of health were nowhere near to be found in the 95 guidelines. And we're talking about economic and social circumstance that affect people and their communities. If you've ever given a patient an inhaler to go, 
Or if your hospital has a arrangement with a transportation service, whether it be Uber, Lyft, or something where you help coordinate safe discharge. Common determinants involve problems related to homelessness or insufficient social insurance. This could be documented in the MDM section of what you're actively doing for the patient. Social determinants of health that are referenced within these guidelines will be scored at the chart level for the care that you provide for your patient. Jason, you shared with me that you've given this talk or a similar talk dozens of times over the last several months. So tell me, what is the most common question that you get? One of the most common questions that we often get involved the review systems. So I ever have to document the review systems again? And the answer is, you only need to document a clinically appropriate history and exam. There's no threshold that defines what you need to document above or below. So it's really a physician-specific decision. Many people are saying, I'm never touching it again. Other people prefer to have it. One other question that came up when Jason was a guest speaker for the group that I work for was about critical care documentation and billing. Is that going to change? And he said there will be no significant changes to that at this time. Summary. Okay, we covered a lot of key information. Let me attempt a summary of the main take-home points, how you are going to change your chart as of January 1st, 2023. First, we're going to document a differential diagnosis that reflects the complexity of care. Second, we're going to discuss comorbidities that add complexity to management. Third, state any external chart review that you've performed, which includes any records outside of the treating emergency department. Fourth, document history obtained from an independent source that includes family, EMS, law enforcement, and others. Fifth, document discussions of management this could be a discussion with a consultant, another physician, whoever you're admitting to. It might be a social worker or a pharmacist, for example. Sixth, document your independent interpretation of studies and use that specific phrase, quote, independent interpretation. Let's not make it a scavenger hunt for our billers. Just drop in the exact phrase they need to hear so that they know what you're doing. Seventh, document diagnostic tests and medications that you thought about but you did not order and why you didn't do it. Eighth, document social determinants of health and how they affect care when relevant. And finally, document shared decision-making because that's also valued in these new guidelines. If you wanna read more about this, I suggest going to the Corpendium chapter on emergency medicine documentation. Thanks so much again to Jason. This has been a lot to unpack, some big changes. Change can be very uncomfortable, but I think overall, this is going to be a very positive thing moving forward once we adapt. 